Well, I'm going to preach two whole books of the Bible tonight. I'm going to cover, and we're going to do a business meeting before it's all said and done. So we've got a lot to cover. So you've got a Bible, you can open it somewhere to Genesis or Exodus, just anywhere will probably be fine, because you'll be able to get to a particular passage I'm going to refer to probably rather quickly if you just turn to the opening books of the Bible. Have you ever wondered how different Christianity would be if we didn't have the Bible? Now think about that. If you didn't have the Bible, if we didn't have the Bible, where would we be as men and women of faith? Well, we'd be left in the dark. We'd be trying to figure out our own way, and none of us can do that. Leaders might try to pass instructions down from one generation to the next generation, but there really would be no way to evaluate their ideas or no standard by which we could judge between differing opinions. And so you think about it, I'm so thankful that God in his providence has preserved his word for every generation. And you and I can be grateful for that. Now the last couple of weeks we've spent some time on uh, the subject known as canonicity. And I've got good news to report. I'm done with that technical stuff. We're going to get into just some more... um, just meat of the word uh, type stuff over the next several weeks. But, but all that aside, it's important you understand that. So I hope the last couple of Wednesday nights you've at least been able to appreciate my feebling attempt at trying to communicate the urgency that uh, you and I really need to understand we've got a complete revelation from God. And I imagine you don't doubt that. There's probably not a person in the room tonight that would doubt that. But I hope that something that was said perhaps may just bolster your confidence, be something to give you perhaps greater confidence that we do have God's word. But you'll notice that tonight, um, the title of our lesson tonight really is the Pentateuch, and I want to cover uh, the books of Genesis and Exodus as we're continuing along in our 52 weeks in the word study that I'm really doing in conjunction with our reading plan that we've been promoting. Now, again, I've given you just a brief overview uh, in passing of Genesis and Exodus as you were reading through it. And so much of that I'm going to just briefly reemphasize before I deal with something in particular. But that word Pentateuch um, comes from a Greek word that means five books. Five books or five scrolls. And that goes back to really the third century the way that Christians began referring to what the Jews refer to as the Torah, uh, the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so Torah, that just simply means law, but think of it more along these terms, instruction, because Torah uh, means law in the sense of instruction. So that the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy really served as the standard for Israel's faith. Uh, According to uh, Deuteronomy, before the Israelites ever entered the promised land, uh, Moses gave them the law, Torah, to be able to guide them into the future. Uh, Deuteronomy 31 actually tells us that the Levites were instructed to place a written copy of this law beside the Ark of the Covenant. And so every seven years, uh, the priests were to read this instruction to the people. Now think about this. You and I have, again, I've made this 
statement over the past several weeks, but we live in a remarkable time where there is technology and there's an abundance of means by which we can access God's word. And aren't you grateful for that? But the priest had to regularly remind the people and read the instruction of the law to the people. Why do they have to do that on a regular basis? Well, because we are forgetful people. Why is it important that we emphasize reading through the Word of God together as a church family? I'll tell you why. I'm a forgetful man. And we are forgetful people. And we constantly need to spend time with God in His Word and be reminded of truth. And so Joshua, later on, he is commanded by God in Joshua chapter 1 to meditate day and night on this Torah, on this law. And so you've got various titles that have referred to or been used to refer to these first five books of Moses. It's referred to as the book of the law of Moses, or abbreviated the law of Moses, the book of Moses, Second Chronicles chapter 35. And so really just that title law was sort of adopted uh, for all five books. And so one thing we've got to keep in mind is that uh, these first five books of the Bible sort of form a part of a literary work that includes um, the history of God's people. And that includes you know, from Joshua on through uh, Second Kings. And so the Pentateuch itself, think of it in terms of an unfinished story. And it anticipates that there's going to be these future developments where God's going to fulfill the promises that he made to those patriarchs. So that by the time you get to the end of Deuteronomy, and you and I, of course, we understand history. We can look back and see how God has continued to act. But there's this anticipation once you get to the end of these uh, first five books of the Bible that God's going to honor the promises that he made to their forefathers. And so you've got the story then of Israel, once they get into the land, uh, that's Joshua, the conquest of the land, they're settled in the land and judges, then another generation arises that doesn't know the Torah. And what you see happen is things spiral into chaos and decay. Which, by the way, the same thing sort of happens on a much smaller scale in the local church (laughs) when we forget the main thing. Because we're so forgetful and because we're oftentimes concerned about what we're dealing with in the moment that if we're not faithful to pass the faith along from one generation to the next and to be intentional to keep the main thing the main thing, then we too will experience the chaos and the disorder and disarray when things spiral into confusion. All right, so the Torah, the, the, the Pentateuch. Now, let me just give you this brief outline. I gave you this um, last Wednesday night. I'll give you all three of those blanks there. Just a simple way of remembering maybe a big outline uh, of the Old Testament. There's the story of God's people. Uh, If you have your Bible there, if you go to your table of contents and look at the table of contents, uh, depending on, on, you know, if it's a, you may be looking on your phone or whatever, you may not be able to see that there, but... In those contents, you'll notice the 39 books of the Old Testament that are listed. You could probably take the first 17 of those books and categorize them under this first heading, the story of God's people. It spans the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, uh, going all the way to the book of Esther. And for the most part, those are narrative books. 
The historical narrative is really the genre there. There's a story that's being told. It's chronological for the most part. And then you'll notice as you read through the Old Testament later on, um, it's mixed up. So that from Genesis to Esther, you really have this, this sequence of the history of God's people, the story of God's people, from creation all the way to the Jewish remnant who returned from captivity and will later rebuild the temple. And so that's hundreds of years that are covered. All right, the second category would be the writings of God's people. And so that would be the next five books of the Old Testament. The first 17 sort of cover the story of God's people. The next five cover what we would say is the writings of God's people. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. These are writings that God's people have given that sort of fit somewhere into that previous history. Don't think of them as continuing the history. If you're not careful, you may be tempted to think, well, Job, that happened after Esther. (laughs) No, it didn't. Because chronologically, it could very well be, some Bible scholars think that Job may be the oldest book of the Bible. That Job was a contemporary of the patriarchs. And so, what you need to realize that in those um, writings of God's people, in these five books, uh, you've got man's response to what God is doing in the history of his people. So that the story of God's people, it's really the story of God who's acting among his people, who's working to form a people for himself. And then those five books of poetry, in many ways, it's God's people responding at various points to what God is doing in the history. And then that third uh, heading would be the prophets of God's people. Starting with Isaiah, going all the way to Malachi. You've got, you've got 17 books, roughly, um, um, 12 minor prophets, Five major prophets. They're not major because their message is more important. I told you this last week. They're, they're major prophets because they have long-winded sermons. <laughs> you know, they're long-winded preachers. The minor prophets are shorter books. So the Old Testament then, it's, it's made up of the story, the writings, and the prophets of God's people. That may just be a simple way for you to just remember uh, how the Old Testament is organized. All right, but tonight I want us to deal specifically with this issue of the Pentateuch, and in particular, the first two books, uh, having considered all that we've seen thus far in our study, where is it that Genesis and Exodus really fit in the overall story of God's people and the plan of God to redeem uh, humanity for himself? Which, by the way, I I think I might have a picture of this. I took a picture from my... um, this is actually a picture of the very first Bible that I had uh, as a kid. I pulled it off my shelf and took a screenshot of something. that I learned the Old Testament by looking at this little chart in my Bible as a small boy. Which, by the way, you know in Sunday school we actually used to teach this? Go figure. We've got to get back to that, don't we? Where we ground boys and girls in just the simple truths of God's word. But how how is it organized? So I remember learning this even as a child uh, where you've got, you know, you've got um, um, law, history, poetry, and prophecy. So that here you've got the Pentateuch, Torah, and here you have history, as far as Joshua to Esther is concerned. 
And then here, the green represents those, those writings of God's people, what we would say is poetry, wisdom literature. And then there at the top of the bookcase, you've got major prophets and at the very top, the minor prophets. I remember just poring over that as a kid and remembering how the Old Testament was organized. It was very, very helpful. And so I think we learn by pictures. And so I would encourage you to just uh, remember this categorization of the Old Testament books as you read them because it's important for us to keep the big picture in mind. All right, so again, take that, use it however you want to. Now, here's the story. It begins with Israel and the first book of Moses, the first book of the Pentateuch, what I'm calling the book of beginnings, Genesis. Now, I won't spend a whole lot of time here. I'm going to be really, really quick because I gave you the flight plan uh, several weeks ago, if you remember, we, we just sort of gave you a 30,000-foot view of the book of Genesis as you were reading through it as we got the year off to a good start. But Genesis is foundational to God's work as creator, foundational to God's work as redeemer of his creation because it all begins with this first book of Moses, creation and sin, God's remedy for sin. You think about family uh, the, the God's design and blueprint for marriage. We find out from Genesis the origin of the nation of Israel. And so to get a grip on the chronology of it all, you can think of the story as being centered around four key events. Four key events. And I'm going to give these to you quickly since I've already mentioned them. There's the formation of the world, the first two chapters of Genesis. The fall of man is the second key event in chapters 3, 4, and 5. The flood, God's judgment on that pre-Diluvian world, chapters 6, 7, 8, 9. And then you've got the fallout of confusion that takes us all the way to the Tower of Babel and God's response to man's rebellion, confusing their speech. And so that's the first 11. By the way, a healthy understanding of the first 11 chapters of the Bible will serve you well in understanding the rest. Someone told me one time, said, look, if you can believe the very first verse of the Bible, you ought to have no problem believing the rest of it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A lot of our problem in society today stems from the fact that man doesn't believe that. Man doesn't believe that. He, he wants to be at the center of his own universe and that's where sin has led man to be. So four key events. And then you've got four key men for the remaining chapters of Genesis. The patriarchs. And the story of the patriarchs. Of course, you've got Abraham in chapters 12 through 25. And his son Isaac, who's the son of promise. And you've got Isaac's son Jacob. And it's Jacob whose name is changed to Israel, which means striving with God. Remember the story of Jacob wrestling with a man until the break of dawn? We discovered that that is not just simply a man that he's wrestling with. It's the God-man. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God himself. And his name is changed to Israel. And so Israel then becomes the focal point. And then the book of Genesis closes out with the emphasis on Joseph. 
really chapters 37 through 50. There are more chapters devoted to telling the story of Joseph than any of the other patriarchs. And I find that interesting simply because there's just so much in terms of Joseph's life that points us to the Lord Jesus. And he's just a picture in the Old Testament of, of, of uh, this youngest son rejected by his brothers, betrayed, sold into slavery, buried in a prison, <laughs> but raised. Amen. And he's at a place of authority. And where we see the picture of Pharaoh causing everyone in the land to bow the knee to Joseph. Zephath Paneah is the name that he's given, which means bow the knee to Joseph. And that, that's interesting to me because that is a picture of the Lord Jesus. And so here you have at the end of Genesis, you've got the nation of Israel, the teeny tiny nation of Israel. There are 70 persons in total that are there with Israel in Egypt. And over 400 years, they grow to become a mighty nation. And so that then is where the story picks up in the book of Exodus, which is the book of redemption. If Genesis is the book of beginnings, then Exodus is the book of redemption. Now, I think sometimes it's really helpful for us to keep this big picture view in mind of the Bible. Because sometimes we, we lose sight of the forest for all the trees. And when it comes to the Bible, all of the individual trees are indeed very, very important. There's not one insignificant word. It's all the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. But sometimes it's helpful to take a step back and be able to look at the bigger picture because you see that it's really one story that's being told of what God has done. By the way, when I first saw that in my Christian experience, it was almost like, wow. Because prior to that, I had always sort of understood the stories of Scripture to just sort of be random. And we finally got to the Gospels and God gave His Son. And that's what we really needed to focus on. And, 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 and I lost sight of that. I didn't understand that it was really one story bringing us to this point of, of this climactic moment where God Himself takes on human flesh and comes to do what we cannot do for ourselves through his own death and his own resurrection. And once you see that, you can't unsee that. And it will change the way that you read the Bible and you interact with, with the Lord in your own devotion time. Because when you get to those passages that are difficult, and you wonder what are their relevance for your life, you'll remember that it really it's not about me, that it's really all about Jesus. It's all about him. And therein you'll discover uh, just... Profound, profound truth. It's life-changing and earth-shattering. So Exodus then, um, first 12 chapters deal with Egypt, uh, or deal with Israel in Egypt. They're in bondage. So the people are being dominated. That's the first word that I would put in that blank there, domination. The second would be liberation through the use of um, his judgment, to the exercise of his judgment in the form of plagues, God delivers his people from their bondage in an awesome display of power. Again, here's the message. God doing for his people in grace what they could not do for themselves. Was it by accident that Israel is in Egypt for 400 long years? It's not by accident. In fact, God tells Jacob to go to Egypt. 
But God also says, I'm going to bring you back up out of Egypt. And so God's making the promise. So, so even though they're there and they multiply and the Egyptians put them into cruel slavery, that doesn't mean that God had forgotten his people. He's not abandoned his people. But it's all part of God's sovereign plan and purpose for his people. Because God is going to break into human history in a powerful way and redeem his people from their bondage. So that who gets the credit and who gets the glory for their escape from Egypt? Who is it? God himself. God gets the glory for their salvation. So you connecting the dots there in your own life? Who gets the credit and the glory for your salvation? You're going to be patting yourself on the back for all of eternity to come? So glad I prayed the prayer. No, you're going to be praising Jesus. God in his grace who saved you. Who did for you what you could not do for yourself. And so that's the pattern that you see uh, as it's laid down here in the Exodus. And then Revelation. Once God brings his people out of their bondage. Redemption first. And then God gives them instruction. The law is given at Mount Sinai. And so here's where Israel gets it backwards in Judaism. By the time we get to the New Testament. Judaism has got this thing in reverse so that they pride themselves on their own moral performance and their ethnicity and they think this is what gives me standing with God. Which is why Jesus says, you're hypocrites. That's why Paul makes the point that he makes in Romans that it's not about law keeping. The law was never given. To give you righteousness, the law only shows you your need for righteousness. And it reveals God's righteousness, but it can't provide you with God's righteousness. You've got to have a Savior for that. So redemption comes first. And then God's giving instruction to his people at Mount Sinai in the form of the Ten Commandments there in Exodus chapter 20. And all of the other laws that then apply. So revelation. All right, and I've gone through this super fast, haven't I? Because here's where I really want to camp out. I want to camp out here for the rest of our time. Identification. All right, so keep in mind the big picture, Genesis and Exodus. God's created the world. God has created man in his own image. Adam and Eve enjoy walking with God in the Garden of Eden. God walks with man, it's a picture of fellowship, it's a picture of intimacy. This is what God has created us for, to know him intimately, so that everything was an act of worship in the Garden of Eden, everything. Sin breaks that communion, doesn't it? It hinders that communion, that fellowship is then broken, and so God's plan of redemption is put in motion. And Abraham and his family are very critical to this plan of redemption that God's put in motion. What is it that Abraham enjoys? By the way, keep, keep in mind that Abraham is a man who is content to live in a temporary dwelling, a tent. Abraham, Abraham is a man who has fellowship with God. He's a man who walks with God. So you've got this pattern that you see in the books of Genesis and Exodus where God, he's wanting to dwell among his people whom he has redeemed for himself. And in order for that to become a reality, there has got to be a mediator. So identification, this is where we deal with the construction of the tabernacle itself. 
Now, I'm amazed at the tabernacle in the wilderness. I'll be honest. Uh, I'm oftentimes amazed why you've got so many chapters devoted to just the details of the tabernacle. And you only have really one or two chapters devoted to the creation of the universe. <laughs> you've thought about that? I'm like, Lord, I wish you'd have given a little bit more insight as to how you formed the galaxies. And all of the starry host, I wish that you had just elaborated a little bit more. You know, Beetlejuice, that massive giant star that it is. I wish you would have just elaborated a little bit more on what that thing's made of. <laughs> but you know why God doesn't do that? Because he's not interested in the stars. He's interested in souls. Worship, that's what matters most. And so all of the details then that are given... As far as the tabernacle is concerned, this is, this is important because all of these details really foreshadow heaven, God's desire to tabernacle with his people, and ultimately, folks, it points us to Jesus himself. Jesus, our great high priest who makes it possible for us to have fellowship with the Father. Not only is he our high priest, but Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. And not only is he our priest and our lamb, but Jesus himself is the sanctuary what was it that he told the crowds? Destroy this temple. <laughs> In three days I'll raise it up. So there's a message here that's being conveyed through the construction of the tabernacle. Now I want to ask you this question. This is not in your notes. You want to jot this down in the margin. Probably be helpful. It's a personal question. Do we look to God's presence on a regular basis? Do I look to God's presence on a regular basis in my life. All right, I had you turn to Genesis and Exodus. I want you to go specifically to Exodus chapters 24 and 25. All right, Exodus chapters 24 and 25. By the time we get to these chapters, God's revealed his law. Moses has made a series of ascents to the top of Mount Sinai. And if you glance at chapter 24, you'll read that God has summoned Moses and the elders of the people. Moses could come near, but the others are kept at a distance. So that what really happens in chapter 24 is really a, a revelation of the way that God's going to meet with his people through the tabernacle that's going to be constructed in the, the coming chapters. And so it really serves as a pattern for salvation and worship. What is it that happens in the chapter? Well, verses 1 through 4, look at it. That he says to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, those are Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. And so Moses came and told all the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood, put it in basins, Half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. 
And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. And so notice here you've got the people who are now sprinkled by this blood of the covenant. In order for worship to be a reality and for us to enjoy the presence of God, there's got to be an application of blood made, right? There's got to be atonement. Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. Now listen to this. This has got to be, I'm telling you, this has got to be some of the most amazing verses in the entire Old Testament. Look at verse 10. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. So here you see Moses and the leadership of the people. They're actually seeing the God of Israel. And again, this too is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God in all of his glory Something very similar is going to happen later on in the New Testament in the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John are on the mountain with Jesus. Moses and Elijah are present. and Jesus is transfigured, dazzling, white, arrayment, clothing like no laundry could ever get white enough. <laughs> Clorox couldn't do it. Tied with bleach couldn't do it. But here's the pattern that, that you see here, okay? God is summoning Moses and the people. The covenant's ratified through blood. Moses and the leaders have fellowship with God. And that's the emphasis there in verses 9, 10, and then on into verse 11. Because they eat and drink. And then verse 12, through the end of the chapter, Moses enters the glory cloud. Now listen to this. Philip Ryken has said something I thought was really profound. He said, this is the story of our own salvation, which Exodus 24 reveals from beginning to end. First, God calls us to worship him, speaking to us by his word. But we are separated from God by our sin. Therefore, we've got to keep our distance until God provides a sacrifice of atonement through the blood of his covenant. And then once our sins are covered, we can have fellowship with God. We can sit down to feast at his banquet table. But how does the story end? It ends with our entrance into glory. And that's the goal of our salvation. Not just to see God and sit down with him, but to participate in his glory. Now folks, listen. This is specific at this particular moment. For Moses and the leadership of Israel, but on a much grander cosmic scale, this is true of every believer in Jesus Christ because of what Christ has done for us. God has summoned us to worship, but sin has alienated us from the presence of this holy God. What is it that man so desperately craves deep down in his heart but worship? And so because he is a creature of worship by impulse and design, he's going to worship something. The problem with man is that he does not worship God. He worships everything but God. He worships sports. He worships his job. He worships his bank account. He thinks he can be, get glory from anything else and everything else in the created universe. He worships everything but God. But what does God do in his grace and in his mercy? He comes to man. 
And he atones for our iniquity through his own shed blood at Calvary. (laughs) So that now, because the blood has been applied to my life, I can sit down at the table of grace and have fellowship with God. And what do I have to look forward to in the future but glory? Well, I'm about to shout on a Wednesday night. Wow, that is so good. And so again, I come back to that question. Do we look to God's presence? Do you you look to God's presence in your own life as a man or a woman? There's a lot of stuff that gets us distracted and discouraged in life. I don't know about you, but I find it easy to get discouraged. I do, I really do. There's a number of things that can get us discouraged and down and out. Things going on in the world that we can't control. Physical issues in our own lives that are beyond our control. Relational conflict that keeps us up at night. Something going on in the life of a child or the life of a grandchild that just has you burdened. What's the answer to all of that? Well, the answer is... Look to the presence of God, my friend. You have, through the way of access that's been opened up by Jesus, you can look to the presence of God. And we should long for the glory of God. And ultimately, that's what this tabernacle in the wilderness points us to. It's just an Old Testament pattern of a New Testament reality. So let's talk about it. The construction of the tabernacle spans 16 or 17 chapters in Exodus. And the first thing that I want you to consider about it is that it was a special place where God dwelt. You get to chapter 25 in Exodus. Notice in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. That's another sign that you've been in the presence of God. You're willing to give. (laughs) Pass the offering plates. That's why we ought to have words. Well, by the way, you know what? It probably would be really biblical for us to pass the offering plates at the end of the service. After we've spent time in the Word and we've spent time worshiping. Well, anyway. But now listen, listen to this. Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution from me. And here's the contribution that you will receive from them. Gold and silver and bronze... Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen and goat's hair. Tanned ram skins and goat skins and acacia wood. Oil for the lamps. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod, the breast piece. This is, this is for Aaron, the, the priestly garments. But verse 8, that's what I really want you to emphasize. You may want to highlight this verse. God says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. So God is saying, I want to dwell among these people that I have redeemed for myself. And so that word tabernacle there, or sanctuary, this is the place where God's presence, his manifested presence, dwelt among his covenant people. And again, that's been the desire of God from the very beginning. God longs to dwell with his people. And you and I were created for this. We were designed and and uniquely created in the image of God to live our lives in fellowship with God. That's why there's going to be a void 
in a person's heart and soul until they are in right relationship with God. And they're going to try to fill that void with all kinds of stuff, but let me tell you, nothing will fill that void or satisfy that void, that black hole at the center of your heart until you come to Jesus. J.R.R. Tolkien, Jonathan and I have an affinity for Tolkien, but listen to this quote. We all long for Eden, and we're constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with a sense of exile. In other words, things just haven't been right since man's been banished from the garden. (laughs) What was the Garden of Eden? It was a place where God and man dwelt in fellowship, where God dwelt among his people. And when man's banished from Eden, there are two cherubim that are placed with flaming sword at the, the gate of Eden to the east. Man's driven out to the east. By the way, why do you think it's significant that there are woven images of cherubim into the veil that separated the holy place in the tabernacle from the holy of holies? Because what was the holy of holies itself? Well, it's really the throne of God. It's a picture of Eden. It's a picture of the place where God and man meet and have fellowship. And so that word sanctuary is an interesting word that's used there in in, in verse 8. It's a combination of two Hebrew words that means to be clean and holy. Now think about that. I know that God is perfect, I know that God is holy, but I know that I am unholy. And I know that I have failed and broken His law. So how can... I live in the presence of this God who's holy and perfect, and I am so unholy and imperfect. Well, God's got to make provision, doesn't he? He's got to do something for me. And so that's why you've got the whole Levitical system and and the system of sacrifices and the priesthood and all of that because God's going to specify there's got to be blood that's got to be shed, and this blood has to be applied to a certain place, and God's going to outline all of this in, in, in the books and chapters to come. So the tabernacle is a special place where God dwelt. Moses is given a specific pattern for the construction of it. And so in that sense, it's a specific place that God designed. Again, six days God creates the heavens and the earth, but it takes him 40 days <laughs> to explain to Moses there on the mountain the design of the tabernacle. It's remarkable. And so, God's going to reveal this design. He's going to tell Moses, take up an offering and a collection from the people for the construction of this sanctuary, which means the people are given an opportunity to be involved. God's making a name for himself, but he's given us an opportunity to make a contribution. What might your contribution be? God's still making a name for himself. What can your contribution be? That's a good application there from, from these chapters. Now, I'm not going to go over all of the details. Um, I do have a couple of pictures here. And I'll be honest, I don't necessarily know if there's a picture out there that would really do it justice. But one thing that you should keep in mind when you think about the, the details and the fabric and the construction of the tabernacle, from the outside looking on, the tabernacle would have looked very, very plain It would look very, very plain. In fact, there's perhaps a more realistic picture 
of what that might have looked like. Israel has to camp and by tribe in, in certain directions to, you know, around the tabernacle itself. You've got the, the outer court that's marked off by this barrier and all those dimensions are mentioned in the scriptures. The tent of meeting itself is, is the covering there that, that where you see the smoke rising. That's, the, that's, that's a picture, an illustrated, an artist conception of perhaps the Shekinah glory cloud of God as it dwelt among, above the tent of meeting itself. The enclosed area was known as the courtyard. There was only one entrance from the east. Which, by the way, there's only one way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The sanctuary itself, the tent, it was approximately 15 feet wide, 15 feet tall, 45 feet long. It was divided into two chambers. You had the, the, the larger chamber being the holy place. It measured 15 by 30 feet. You had the holy of holies, the smaller chamber. That's a 15 by 15 by 15 perfect cube. Which is interesting, especially when you go to the end of the Bible and you read the dimensions of the New Jerusalem. The city of God, where we as God's people are going to dwell with God for all of you. It's a perfect cube when you look at the dimensions that are mentioned there. So, this is amazing. God's really giving his, his people a picture of something that's eternal. Something that's heavenly. An earthly structure that's intended to convey a heavenly meaning. And within this complex, you had uh, seven pieces of furniture. And I say seven because I consider the mercy seat itself, which was the top of the Ark of the Covenant, to be its own piece of furniture because the dimensions and the design of it are also clearly mentioned separately. So what were the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle? Well, you had the bronze altar, uh, the bronze lever, the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, the menorah, as it's referred to, the altar of incense, and then inside the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant, and the lid of the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat. So I don't know if you can see this, but there's sort of a picture of what perhaps that would have looked like on the inside of the inner sanctuary itself. Which, by the way, there's a reason Jesus made statements like, I am the light of the world. He's living bread. The altar of incense, which is just before the, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, is symbolic of prayers that go up before God. The Ark of the Covenant being symbolic of the throne of God. The mercy seat where you have two cherubim that are facing each other with their heads bowed and their wings extended. When the high priest would go in uh, to the holy of holies on the day of atonement, he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. That's where God specified that the blood be applied. And all of that is fulfilled in Jesus. Now, I'll come back to this next week because we'll get into Leviticus next week. Leviticus was really just outlining the worship system inside the tabernacle itself. But the last thing that I want you to consider is that this is really a symbolic place that God has directed. The tabernacle is a symbolic place as God himself has directed. Now, I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 8 as I close, okay? Hebrews chapter 8. And notice what the writer of Hebrews 
has said concerning Jesus and how all of this is symbolic of, of Jesus. Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. <clears throat> we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So that tells us that all of this in the Old Testament is symbolic of a heavenly reality. For every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Now verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So every priest that served in the tabernacle during those wilderness years... During the years that the tabernacle was at Shiloh and later on in the temple in Jerusalem, everyone who served and all of the instruments that were there were merely a shadow, a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect this tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates his better since it's enacted on better promises so all of this then really the tabernacle was just a temporary pattern that served to illustrate an eternal principle and the reason we need to know this is not so that we can make replicas of it and draw pictures of it and that kind of thing but we learn the symbolism because it teaches us something about the God that we worship why all the detail? Why the design the way that it is? Because the writer of Hebrews wants you to know that it simply is an earthly structure designed to teach heavenly realities to God's people. You might could say the tabernacle is a microcosm of the universe. Inside was heaven, outside was earth, with God at the center of it all. Philip Ryken says this, The heart of the tabernacle was the holy of holies where God reigned in glory. The tabernacle, in turn, was at the heart of Israel with all 12 tribes surrounding it. And Israel was at the heart of the world, the centerpiece in God's plan for saving the nations. The tabernacle was the most important place in the world, a little bit of heaven on earth. And the point was not that somehow God can be contained within the four walls of a tent. No, the tabernacle was set up like heaven to show that God rules over both heaven and earth. It's a visual aid. And the principle is, God says, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among my people. Now, the good news of the gospel, folks, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, Jesus is the, the unique God-man. He is the fulfillment of the priesthood, the sacrificial system, and the sanctuary itself. And now, due to the finished work of Jesus Christ, you and I, you and I are the temple of the living God. Here's the last statement I'll make before we pray. We've all had a genesis, a beginning, but not every one of us has had an exodus, which is a deliverance from bondage. And if you've not had an exodus and you're still in bondage, then that means you can't know God in the freedom of worship that he wants you to know. But the gospel invitation is, if you're thirsty, come drink. Jesus has come to me. 
Would you bow with me tonight? Lord, I'm so thankful for the precious promises that we've been given in your word. Thank you for Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament shadows and copies of heavenly realities. And Lord, I'm so thankful that you're a God that desires to dwell among us as your people. May we look to your presence. May we long for your glory. We're so dependent upon you, Lord. Forgive us of being so distracted by the trappings of this life and all of the stuff. <laughs> May we look to you and find our joy and our satisfaction in you and your glory. Oh God, the world is so lost and alienated and in the dark. But Christ is the light. And we are the sanctuary of the living God. And so may we, as your people, let our light so shine before men that they might see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. And for those tonight, Lord, that are hurting and confused. and Oh God, I just pray in Jesus' name that this wonderful truth of you being a God who tabernacles with us, who's come to dwell now in us in the person of your Holy Spirit, May that be a comforting truth to your people tonight. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen, amen. and amen.